out of reverence now for the Word of God, if you would stand, please, for the reading, if you're physically able. And that reading comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This, friends, is the word of the Lord for you, his people. And by its truth, may you rise in spirit and in truth and in the living hope of our God. In Jesus Christ, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, I've never done this, but I'm going to blow my nose in public. Wife is watching and she is now aghast that I just did that. But such is life and that's your fault. So So I know with everything that's going on in the world, I will forgive you if you are not aware of this big controversy that is brewing in the realm of interstellar science and and research. I know all of you read Galaxy Journal. It came out in March of 2022. It's a peer-reviewed scientific interstellar science journal. And there's a group of scientists who published an article that they have prepared a welcome message to be beamed to the far reaches of the universe. It says, these scientists say, it will introduce humanity to extraterrestrial intelligences that might be living on one or more of the many potentially habitable planets believed to lie within the star ring. Okay, we're going to send out greeting. Now, I had to find it. It was a little bit humorous to me because apparently part of the message is a prototypical male and female with their hand raised in a welcoming gesture. Hello. Well, What if on alien planets, this is like an obscene gesture or something, (laughs) right? But anyway, that was just my thought. But there's also a star map, kind of like the GPS system in your car, that will guide the aliens right on through space, right here to the earth. And I'm assuming right on into Orlando, Florida, because the first place they're going to want to go is Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, right? So they will come right to Orlando. Astrophysicist Stuart Taylor said this, sending the message could benefit humanity by putting us in touch with peaceful aliens whose scientific and technological knowledge surpass our own. Okay, that all sounds good and fine, but what if they're not peaceful? What if they're not like E.T.? 
Like, what if they're like the, the movie aliens in the movie Alien, right? They don't like us. And so that's why there's controversy. There's a whole other group of scientists who were led by Stephen Hawking before he died, but now Elon Musk is involved in it, and they're getting all these scientists together, and they're just going, don't send out a message. In fact, 90% of the scientists interviewed said, don't send out a message. We don't know what's out there. Whoops, we already sent a message. 1977, NASA sent a message, and it had all these earth sounds, whale calls and thunderstorms and 55 different languages saying welcome along with Chuck Berry's famous song, Johnny Be Good. (laughs) People, you can't make this stuff up, right? But alas, scientist Kristen Fahey said, we will likely not exist as a species thousands of years from now. So sending out a message would at least serve as a small reminder that one day we existed. Well, that's cheery, isn't it? I mean, it's like we're so anxious in this world right now, we can't even decide whether we ought to send a welcome message to aliens. And even if we do, it's just going to wind up being something scrawled on a bathroom wall that said, earthlings, we're here. Right? It's crazy. Now, I know that I'm kind of poking fun but I'm also kind of not because if you look at everything that's happened in our world in the last three years, we really do live in an age of anxiety. There is a lot that creates a sense of disequilibrium. And Tim Keller has said that all those things taken together has put our culture, our world into a crisis of hope, a crisis of hope because for the first time we've realized that the arc, the trajectory of the world is not ascending to a world that is going to be increasingly prosperous and safe and good, which is what the Enlightenment promised us. The Enlightenment said, through human science, knowledge, and reason, the world is just going to increasingly be a better place. We're not going to need God anymore because you and I are going to know how to figure out our own problems and everything's going to turn out great. And there's some scientists who absolutely still believe that. Steven Pinker at Harvard University wrote a book just recently called Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. So sometimes say, oh man, the world is improving. And yes, are there advances? Are we learning things? 100%. But they're still in the back of our minds, is there not? There's this sense of anxiety that all of those books can't answer. There's this sense within us that something has gone wrong. The Jewish historian Yuval Harari writes this, we hunger for meaning and purpose. We find that things we thought would bring us satisfaction do not. We are shocked at the evil other human beings and we ourselves are capable of doing. What can we do about us? We have this abiding sense that, yes, there's problems in the world, but there are also problems in here. There's something wrong with humanity. And ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, we've spent time there. We've looked, and it's stunning, like How could one leader be so uncaring about just the loss of innocent life? What's what's wrong with us? And in a world where that can exist, then where's their hope? And that's the question that in the next six or eight weeks, I want to work through with you because I believe that the answer is firmly grounded in Easter. The hope of our lives is the empty tomb, but... But see, here's what happened. We, we go through Lent, right? We spend six weeks in Lent. And man, we meditate 
and we think about our sin, and we think about suffering of Jesus, and we think about the darkness and all those things, and then bam, Easter morning happens. It's bright clothes and brunch and baskets, right, all day. But then we get to Easter evening, and it's like we tuck it in a drawer and we put it away until next year, when actually Easter has always been intended to be the pinnacle, the greatest hope that you and I have. Even Charles Hodge, sorry, Case, Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, in his book, spent 127 pages on the cross and only four on the resurrection. Right, so what I want to do with you is I want to try to write the balance a little bit. Yes, we spend a lot of time talking about the cross, as we should, but we need to talk equally as much about the resurrection. We need to begin to reclaim. And so the title of this sermon series for the next eight weeks is Rediscovering Hope. And where we begin today is in this first letter of Peter to the Christian church. It's intended to have a wide audience. I don't know what's going on with this light right here, but can you turn that one down? Sorry, I just can't see people. So Peter is writing to a wide Christian audience. It's about 63. And so we know that Peter's getting close to the end of his ministry because he's crucified upside down in Rome in 68. But he writes this letter to a broad Christian audience, but he's writing it in Rome to a people that have been suffering. I mean, to be a Christian in that time, you were going to suffer socially, politically, economically, and physically. And they were about to suffer some more. So Peter is trying to address the very question that we've raised this morning in a world in which there's a lot going on and many of us are in the midst of trials and suffering and pain. How do you juxtapose that to Easter morning? How do you juxtapose suffering with the presence of God and the fact that you and I are called to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ? That's the question. It's the question that was before Peter and it's what he's trying to answer today. And so that's what I wanna begin we're going to do this for a number of weeks, but I want to begin to address that with you this morning. So first, what does Peter say? Your hope is not found in science. It's not found in financial gain. It's not found in social progress. It is not found in political power. Your hope is found through God and God alone. Verse three, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, our hope, our living hope comes from the empty tomb. That's the good news. Now, if I'm sitting in Rome and I'm a Christian at this time and Paul sends me this letter and I read it, it's gonna hit me, frankly, a little bit odd. It's gonna make me feel as if Peter does not know what's going on with me because I'm suffering. I'm in a bad place. And Peter comes out of the gate with praise be to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Does Peter not see what's happening to me? Does Peter not know what's going on? How can he say that? And to be honest with you, people, I've been living in that spot for the last two weeks where three women who I love and who are very important to me have all experienced deeply painful things. One suffered a miscarriage. One, an artist who for 40 years with her left hand has created God-glorifying beauty. And two days ago, they had to fuse her left wrist and the bones in her left hand because of debilitating arthritis. And then another woman who, after battling breast cancer and chemotherapy and surgery and recovery, now she has metastatic breast cancer. 
So I wasn't thrilled about praising God. Frankly, I said to the Lord, this is piling on. Do do you not see? Do you not know they love you? But then I got to this text and see, this is where my study leave matters because I plan to preach on this subject today, last May. God said, here's what you're going to do on May 8th, 2022, David. And I didn't know any of this was going to happen, but this is what I got today. And so the Lord said to me, you know what, Swanson? You praise me without caveat or corollary. Always. Why? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, because God in his great mercy. What is mercy? Told you this before. It's not getting what you deserve. So we deserve the wrath of God. And people, we didn't get it. Through his great mercy, he's given us new birth. So through the pain and the suffering and the labor of the cross, you and I have been born into a living hope, not a static hope, not a dead hope, but a living hope that is alive and thriving in us through the Holy Spirit every single day, available to us every single day. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through the power and the hope of Easter morning. That is our hope. And so that living hope tells us that no matter what's happening to us today, no matter what the trial is that we're in, it doesn't win. It will never have victory over us because God in Christ has risen from the dead because Easter morning is true. And that changes our perspective. If our hearts are oriented that way, it changes our perspective. Kyle Harper is a Christian historian who's written on the ancient pandemics and the way that Christians used to respond by going towards the suffering and not away. And here's what he writes. For Christians, it was a positive program. This, this life was always meant to be transitory and just part of the larger story. What was important to Christians was to orient one's life towards the larger story, towards the story of eternity. They did live in this world. They did experience pain and they loved others. But the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories that they lived. And see, too often for us people, I think we get so consumed with just this life. We act like this is all there is, but we are part of this much larger story. The story of God's redeeming work in Christ, his story at work that goes on through eternity. And so let me ask you this morning, what... What is the orientation of your heart? And if you don't like the orientation of your heart, then how do you begin to change it? Because the early Christians, that they understood, you know what? We, we live here and they, it was all wrapped together, right? It was both pain and love. They were engaged in the world, but they knew this is not all there is. And so when I think about how we're experiencing faith today, how we're going through the trials of our life, sometimes I think we have an orientation problem. Because the world comes to us and the world is trying to get us to orient according to its way. Remember, we spent a whole year talking about how our culture catechizes us and teaches us its answers to our questions. And so for a year, we did a a cultural catechesis. We had to catechize one another according to what the scripture says. And that's what Easter does. It reorients us away from the answers of the culture. See, the culture says there is no purpose for pain. 
Pain should be avoided. So you go use something, buy something, go somewhere, bow down at the idols of culture to relieve your pain and get away from it instead of orienting yourself towards Easter, which is something entirely different. So the young woman who I told you about who suffered a miscarriage, she is my chosen daughter. And uh, and just a quick parenthesis, can we please come up with a better word than miscarriage? Because miscarriage makes it sound like it's the mother's fault. Like she carried the baby wrong. You miscarried it. It's an awful word. But let me also say this. If you're a mother who's ever gone through that, don't let anyone ever tell you that somehow your loss is less than if you had carried that baby to full term. You lost a child, your child, and you need to grieve that in every way and to know and remember that you will know that child again in the fullness of heaven. You will be reunited. Don't believe that lie. But as as she's going through this, the, the miscarriage is happening and we're texting back and forth and I got her permission and she's watching right now. Uh, I got her permission to read this to you. She responded to one of my texts and she said, I just need to grieve. And it's such a weird, ambiguous, makes everyone feel awkward kind of grief that it also makes me feel so lonely. I'm never one to ask why. I'm way too much of a legalist to think I'm beyond the effects of a fallen world. I'm just ready to learn what God is trying to teach me and feel him. I'm running to him and reading scripture and trying to give it to him, but I don't feel him right now. And that frightens me. Obviously, I know he's right there and he's holding my pain in his hands and I just wish I could feel him. It's so raw and it's so honest and I'm so incredibly proud of her because what's she doing? She's trying to orient her life to Easter. She's running towards him. She's reading scripture. She's praying. But what does it also reveal? It's hard. In the midst of pain and suffering and faith and the dynamics of the presence of God and how we understand it, it's just, it just takes time. You grow into it and she's working and she's running towards him so faithfully. But you know what? What, what is she also not doing? She's not running away from him. She's not running to cultural idols and bowing down at those idols and believing that something else can relieve or take away the pain because the culture says there's no use for this pain, run away from it. She's chosen to orient her life towards Easter. And you know what? Sometimes the best way that you can reorient your life is to do exactly what you're doing now, to come to church, to come to worship with God's people, where you gather in a sacred space and reorient your mind away from what the world is telling you. And you remember God is on the throne, that God is actually enacting a plan to redeem and save the world. And that's the larger story that I'm part of. So God is the source of your living hope. And we understand that the more we orient our lives towards Easter. But secondly, it's just a hard question. I mean, it's very challenging for us as Christians to hold those two things in tension. Yes, God is our living hope. And then what do I do with my trials? And just exactly how is he my living hope? Right? And so Peter says in verse six, in this, you greatly rejoice. In what? Easter, the empty tomb, everything he just said in verse three. In this you rejoice, but then I wish you would stop 
But he goes on and he says, though now you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And I want to go, no, no, no. I just want Easter. Didn't, didn't Easter nullify that part? Is this some kind of cruel joke, this paradox? Richard Brooks writes, every Christian faces this paradox, that of resting in the Lord, but of facing a continual restlessness. This present world is a restless place for the Christian because it is not our resting place. Heaven is. Here, we're like strangers living in a foreign land, living in tents. And what's the nature of tents? They're temporary. They're designed for people who are on the move and Christians are on the move. See, we live the way God calls us to in Jeremiah 29. You know, this is not our home. We're exiles living in a foreign land. We are. And our hearts tell us that, that restlessness. But what do we do? We dig in. We build houses. We get married. We raise our families. We become productive in order to build the kingdom of God. But always, always, in the back of our mind, we know there's that restlessness that's trying to make sense out of the presence of God and the fact that what we see in the world is still suffering and evil and trials. And how do we make all those things work together? There's something in us that says there must be more. There must be more. And even as we struggle with that this morning, and I'm going to come back and answer that in just a second, what I want you to see is it's even more difficult for the non-Christian. If you don't believe in God, it's a far worse story if you run from him, right? Because what does the Christian come? What does the non-Christian do in coming? The Christian says, no, no, your God can't possibly be real. What they say is, well, the God that you say exists isn't possible because suffering and evil are here. So if there is suffering and evil, and you say you have this great God, then either God is not all loving, but he is all powerful. And so he's actually choosing not to stop your suffering. He doesn't really love you. He could stop it, but because he didn't really love you, he chooses not to, or God is all loving. He absolutely loves you, but he's not all powerful. And so he can't stop it. And so because suffering and evil exist, the non-Christian will say, God isn't real. But where does that leave them? They have now run away from the only source of their hope. Because if you say there is no God, then French philosopher John Paul Sartre tells us where that leaves us. He says, in the absence of God, there can no longer be any a priori notion of good. A priori meaning assumed, that we assume there's such a thing as good. You can't do that anymore because there's no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. It's nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we're now on the plane where we are only human beings. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. You see the mess the non-Christian is in? Because when you remove God, now you're just left on the plane of human beings. And it's just my opinion versus yours. And no one's written anywhere. No one says that you have to be good. No one says you shouldn't lie. The whole thing is just up for grabs. So any notion that we could have a culture grounded in moral behavior completely falls apart. And evil and injustice never get answered. You want to go there? You want to run away from God's existence? I don't think so. So where then is the living hope? Well, here it is. Verse 7. Peter says, these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So all through the scriptures, how does God describe the trials of our lives? They're fires. And the fires, though, the Bible tells us they never consume us. They never have victory over us. They shape us, they refine us, but they don't win. Isaiah 43, 2, when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What's that point to? Easter morning, the empty tomb. The flames aren't gonna burden you. They may help refine you. They may shape you into the image of Jesus, but they will not consume you. And how do we know the beauty of Daniel 3? Remember Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they refused to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. So he has them thrown into the fiery furnace. And the fire's so hot, it consumes the soldiers who threw them in there. But then in verse 24 of chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet as he looks into the furnace. And he says, weren't there three men? who were tied up and thrown into the fire. Look, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of a God. People, there's the vision of how we endure the suffering and the trials of this life because of the presence of the fourth man, the presence of the son of God. And in the trial, it's not consuming us. We're unbound. There's a freedom that we know even in the trial because God in Christ is with us and we know we can endure it. So we're unbounded, we're unharmed. We need not fear it because of the presence of God, the fourth man. So how do we endure in the challenges of this life? We endure it because God has promised that he will always be with us. And I'll say this, there was a time in Christian faith when we used to come to church in order to understand more deeply the nature of our suffering and misery. We wanted to understand the larger story and how it fit. But in these last years, people now come to church because they want to be relieved of their misery and their suffering. They want the preacher to make them feel better and to make them happy. And guess what, folks? There are a lot of churches that you can go to if you just want me to make you feel good or the pastor to make you feel good and make you happy. But First Presbyterian Church Orlando is not one of them because that's not my job. My job is to speak truth into your life so that your faith grows and that your life is one of enduring discipleship in the Lord. So I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't know the reason why God continues to allow suffering and evil. I don't know. And I'm not going to give you a list of five things that if you'll do these five things, you'll be happy. Why? Because I don't know that. And anybody who says they do is lying to you. But here's what I know. I know what the reason can't be. And it can't be because he doesn't love you. The cross tells us that. That God in Christ looked into the greater fire. It wasn't just the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was the greater fire of evil and sin and death. And why did he do it? Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you. You're his joy. You're his love. There is no greater love than the sacrifice that God made on your behalf. So I know the reason can't be that he doesn't love you. And then secondly, I know that it can't be that he doesn't have the power to defeat it. Why? Because of Easter. Because on the third day, he overcame the greatest power 
that you and I can ever face in this life, and that's death. And yet by the power of God, he rose above it so that one day we know that we will rise and that the slings and the arrows of this world, they will not win. I can't tell you why, but I can tell you three things. I can tell you that he loves you. I can tell you that he is able and he can indeed handle the circumstances and the problems of your life and bear you up through it. Why? Because third, he's with you. The fourth man is with you always. So I go to Dallas. I'm going to stop with this. Sorry, I'm making some of you late for your Mother's Day brunch. I go to Dallas. I've been on six airplanes in six days. I'm whipped. But my last night there is my 40th high school reunion. Yes, stories will be forthcoming. Can't wait to tell you those. So interesting. But you know how I'm just so tired and I get home late and I get in bed in the guest room at my dad's house. And what happens? You go into a deep sleep, you wake up and you don't know where you are. Right? So I wake up and you get that kind of panicky feeling like, what is happening? And so I'm, I'm, my eyes are darting around the room trying to just orient myself. And I finally see the ceramic lamp that belonged to my mom that's now in the guest room. And I'm like, ah, I'm at dad's house. All right. That's what we need in the disorientation in the age of anxiety in which we live, we need to be reoriented. We need to see Easter. Get it back out of the drawer that you put it in on Easter evening. When you said, oh yeah, it's Friday, Sunday's coming, that's great. Get that back out. Because that's true every day. He loves you, he is able, and he is with you all to his glory and praise, and honor. Let's pray. Father, for all those who are hurting this morning, I pray that you would come near, that you would bring in and through the resurrection of you, our God, through Jesus, that you would show us afresh and anew the living hope of your love and your power and your presence, that that would be enough to bear us up today, not tomorrow, but that that would bear us up today for you, the fourth man, endured the greater flames to overcome death on our behalf. And may the hope of that day, that one day when we will rise, no more suffering, no more pain, may it see us through to that moment. We ask it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.